If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by visiting chriscarl.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find links to both Patreon and PayPal, where you can make donations. Any and all support is massively appreciated, and a huge thank you to everyone that has supported thus far. and we have episode 101 on repeat essentially but not really since the last time we spoke obviously every single day there's so much going on but one big thing that i noticed actually from a q and a thing on on your story on instagram uh, you're no longer doing 35 mil or medium format work you're sticking solely with large format so what was behind that decision well i never really shot much 30 35 millimeter just cuz there's I always had so much trouble finishing a roll of 35 millimeter. It would just take weeks and weeks to finish. But I shot uh, the Pentax 6.7 for a while and I really enjoyed that camera. The, the quality from it is really nice. The look that you get is exactly what I wanted. But it seemed like every time that I went out to shoot, I would just be uh, wanting to shoot the 4x5. And then everything after that would just be like a backup with the Pentax. And I don't know if that has to do with like the style that I've been shooting, just a, a lot slower pace and like really being choosy with my shots or something like that, or just the people that I've been getting inspiration from since I've been watching a lot of like Alex Soth and Joel Sternfeld. But it's just like every time I went out, it was just like a backup. So I never liked to keep a lot of gear or anything. So I just made the decision that I was going to buy an 8x10 and then sell off my medium format stuff. And uh, ended up picking up an Intrepid used, and I really like their cameras because they're light and they're relatively affordable. Eight by tens can get really expensive, but I wanted to keep the camera cheap so I could um, buy all the other essentials that you need for eight by ten, like film holders and film and stuff like that. But yeah, only rocking with large format now, and I think it's just going to suit my style from here on out and uh, just help with the stories that I want to tell and the pictures that I want to take. Well, the, the obvious thing that jumps out, and this is pure ignorance on my part, so please honestly educate me on this, um, is that if you're shooting medium format and you want to work slower, you can just work slower. Whereas right. with large format, you, you can't work faster, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Is it the case that you were just struggling to have that discipline on yourself or did it just feel like it was too disposable? Because obviously, like I say, you could have just slowed down with medium format. So how did that work out? Yeah. I mean, you do slow down when you're shooting medium format. Um, and I think I did like the, even when I shot digital afterwards, I still shot a lot slower and I took a lot less pictures, but there just seems to be something. I don't know if it has to do with like detail or sharpness or just the way that the image looks, but every time I would go into scan, uh, the Pentax shots, I would just be like, it would just leave a little, uh, it just wouldn't be as good as the four by five shots. And I know that probably has to do with like just pixel peeping and detail, but it just didn't have the look that I was going for. And like I would, I could slow down as much as I wanted and like put the Pentax on a tripod, but it still doesn't match the whole workflow of shooting large format. And um, it was nice too, because when you shoot four by five, it's, it's going to be the exact same uh, principles when you move up to eight by 10, it's just going to be a bigger camera. So it was nice to be able to get that sort of practice on four by five and not spend as much money. And then, uh, now when I get the eight by 10, which is, should be here tomorrow, um, I shouldn't have like any practice going into it. It's just going to be pretty much the same, just a bigger negative in general. If we can go back to the six, seven, I do want to talk about large format, but the, the Pentax six, seven has this sort of enormous cult following. And, and I think. With YouTube, that seems to be a big deal. I think especially, and I've never owned one, but it's the 105mm 2.4 seems to have Mm -hmm. a huge cult following. Is there a thing, and this is just an opinion question more than anything, but is there a thing where you have a lens that has that kind of, that special source or whatever, it has that thing that just makes it stand out. But when it becomes very commonly used by a lot of people that are all in the same 
circles and they're all shooting a very similar style that it, it can kind of lose what makes it special because everyone's using it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of see that with the Pentax cause there are a lot of people that I follow that are getting into that. And I think it does kind of lose its luster, but I, I mean, it has that cult following for a reason. I think it's like out of, cause I've like used, I used to have the RZ six, seven and I used the one ten. and the one ten is definitely sharper. Um, it's going to give you like a more clinical, uh, image and it's just going to be like better overall color, but the Pentax just has this certain look to it and you can't replicate it on medium format anywhere else. And it has like some flaws, but, um, that's just, it's just a fun lens to use because it just has this specific look. And yeah, I definitely agree with you with it kind of losing its luster and everyone has it. And then you, you kind of look at it from an outsider's point of view at that point. And then that on top of just not fitting in with my process as much anymore, just kind of led me more towards large format. Well, you said eight by 10 coming. I've got fingers crossed for you. It's going to come tomorrow. I know the post has been, or the mail, sorry for, for <laughs> our American friends. The, 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 the mail has been un, unreliable over the last, uh, the last year or so, but fingers crossed it comes tomorrow. Is there a danger with you getting eight by 10 that you'll just gravitate really heavily to either the eight by 10 or the four by five and neglect the other? Yeah, I think I've been thinking about that a lot. And cause like right now I have two lenses for the four by five and one is the Zenitar lens. And it's a really rare lens that I got extremely lucky to pick up because I got it on eBay and there was like a, it was just listed really weird. And they usually sell for like anywhere from three to $10,000. And I got it for less than a thousand and it, is the equivalent of a 300 millimeter 5.6 on eight by 10. So that's like a normal lens on eight by 10, but on four by five, it just has this incredible look that you can't really get anywhere else. And, um, I have been thinking about, about that a lot. I'm trying to decide if I want to keep the Zenitar lens or just stick with the the 300 mil on eight by 10 and then get a cheaper normal lens for the four by five. But um, with color film being as expensive as it is on eight by 10, I think I'm going to lean towards shooting more color, um, stuff on four by five. And then with eight by 10, if I want to do like an environmental portrait or just something that warrants getting a lot of detail out of the negative, then, um, I'll shoot that in black and white, but I definitely want to shoot some color on eight by 10, but it's, it's pro- it's anywhere from 150 to $200 for 10 sheets of film. So wow. that's going to, yeah, that's going to be a uh, few and far between. <laughs> and then, uh, especially since I process everything at home, when you process eight by 10, you have to use, um, 1.5 liters of developer. So that's just a whole nother thing because the one that I use is a one liter kit. So then I'll, I'll have to get a two liter kit and then it just makes everything a lot harder, but, um, I'm looking forward to shooting a lot of black and white in eight by 10, because that's just an easier process for me. Well, obviously you get those enormous negatives with just tons of detail and something I love about large format, not that I've ever shot it, but what I, what I enjoy about seeing it is, is the depth of field being at times quite trippy and, and the, the plane of focus can sometimes be very slightly skewed and there's all kinds of mm-hmm. wonderful sort of foibles about something that's that old, that it hasn't been overcorrected in the same way that say digital photography is getting corrected on a daily basis. But to, to display images with so much detail, obviously Instagram's not a wonderful representation of all of the work that goes into creating that image. And then I, I personally disagree when a lot of people say that you don't see the image in a digital way. Cause I think you do. I do think you see the difference between large format and medium format and, and the difference between film and digital. Even on even on the phone, I think there's enough there that you can see a difference. But are you tem- oh, yeah, are you tempted sure. to do something like um, I don't know, put put together an exhibition or a book that can kind of really showcase this work for what it's worth? Well, I definitely the the book thing is definitely going to happen, and uh, like I don't know I I don't know anything about getting an exhibition or anything that involved involved in that process, but that would definitely be cool. But I don't think my work right now warrants anything like that. 
but, uh, like I did just pick up an enlarger and I've been doing darkroom printing for around three weeks now. So my idea with the eight by 10 is to do contact prints, which I've heard and I've watched a lot of videos on and about how much detail you can get out of that with just an eight by 10 print. And I can't, I won't be able to print anything bigger because I don't have a enlarger head that suits eight by 10, but um, even with like four by five and printing that, like printing that up to 16 by 20 and uh, in the dark room is like unbelievable. The amount of detail you can get. And I agree with you. Like I can definitely tell the difference between 35 millimeter and medium format and large format on Instagram. And um, I'm definitely looking forward to putting to using the eight by 10 for an extended period of time to collect some more subjects for the book. And then definitely going to put out uh, a book in the future. And I think that detail and that look of large format will look really, really nice in book form. I mean, this is a bit of a stupid question, but then I guess it's kind of fitting considering it's coming from me, but I feel like to get good at something, you know, there's that old phrase about putting in your 10,000 hours to really master something. And a lot of digital photographers or a lot of, sorry, a lot of starting photographers go to digital because there's a lot of sort of disposable images that you take when you're new and you don't want to be putting money into figuring out how a, how a camera works or figuring out, mm -hmm. you know, what your style is and so on. So digital does suit that really down to the ground, but is there still growth in, in shooting a lot? And is, is it something where it's going to inhibit you because you're going to have to be so selective, especially with those slightly shocking um, numbers that you just said about the cost of film mm -hmm. for, for the large format. Is, is that something that you think is going to inhibit your improvement or do you think it will actually help? Well, that's the thing because since I've, I started shooting large format last June, so it's been um, like nine months or so. And I've, I added up how many sheets that I've taken since then and it's less than 150. So I've taken less than 150 photos in nine months. And I, the thing is it, it costs so much and it's so time consuming and everything that goes into it, there's just a lot more on the line. So I think you're learning like it somehow enhances with every shot that you take compared to digital where you might ring off a thousand photos and not learn anything. Mm -hmm. And with four by five, if you take one photo and your tilt was slightly off, it's like, oh, well, I've, I messed that up. It's, it's a lot more mechanical and a lot more physical, I guess, instead of like, I underexposed or overexposed or the composite, like, I feel like when you use a four by five, you already have a pretty good idea of like how to compose and your exposure and things like that. Most of it just has to do with learning to interact with your subject and making sure every part of the camera is perfectly fine tuned, like not, not having a little bit of tilt or not having a little bit of swing that messes up the focus that's my biggest problem right now is when I look back on some of my photos, there might be like some swing that I didn't want or some tilt or just like there was uh, like too much headroom, stuff like that. And I don't think it hinders you because there's so much more on the line. And specifically when I get into eight by 10, like when I go to take that photo, I'm going to be making sure that literally everything is perfect. So when I cl click the shutter, I know for sure that I'm going to get, um, a good negative to, to scan in and to print out. I mean, I'm, I'm very new to film. I'm very much a digital photographer, which I apologize for. <laughs> no, I shoot, I mean, I shoot weddings too. So, uh, no, so you understand that the plight that, that, that is weddings, you do, yeah, you do need uh -huh. to be on digital, but something that's come up an awful lot. And I, I had a brief foray into medium format, unfortunately, due to the nature of the wedding business in, in England for the last year. I've had to be quite uh, restrictive of where my money goes. So probably medium format, something I'm not going to touch for a while at least. Mm -hmm. But one thing I did notice when I did dip a toe in medium format was the amount of times people would say to me, well, if you're shooting this film on 35 mil, this would be a better equivalent for medium format. So like people telling me not to shoot Tri-X on 35 mil to only shoot it on medium format because it's too it's it's too contrasty or it's not detailed enough or it's too grainy or whatever for 35 mil 
Mm-hmm. Is there a similar jump in terms of medium format up to, to large format? Are there any film stocks that don't carry over particularly well? Like, is the cult of Portra still as strong at large format? I'd say the main difference is there's just not as much to choose from. So with like four by five, you have um, you have some slide film and then you have uh, Portra, Ektar. You don't have like Lamography and all like all these like not second rate, but just like these backup uh, like lower grade consumer films. Yeah. But the one thing that I've noticed is just the the exposures and the latitude just seems to be different. And I know there's some like science behind that with the bigger negative, but um, it just feels like I get better exposures on large format. And I don't know if it's because of what I've learned and uh, just being better about exposing, but, and the other thing is the grain on large format is so tiny. When I shoot Tmax 100 on four by five, it's, such a pain to actually focus on when I'm scanning it. And it's such a pain to focus on the grain because it's so tiny. And that's what I love about large format is because I don't like a ton of grain on my, on my shots. When I shot medium format, I would shoot just low speed film. And um, I'm interested to see what um, a lower speed eight by 10 film looks like with the grain on that, because if it keeps getting smaller and smaller, it's just going to be non-existent soon. So. Well, speaking of, of availability of film stocks, since we last spoke, uh, 400H disappeared to an extent from, from Fuji's uh, lineup, I think from 2022, I think it's going to be completely gone, but I didn't really pay all that much mm-hmm. attention. Um, and inevitably people completely shit the bed on Instagram about it and everyone had to post <laughs> about it, which drove up the, uh, it drove up the the maniacal way in which stuff was being bought up and, you know, you end up with essentially scalpers making their way into the film community and so on. You know, what do you feel about something like Fuji 400H going out of production in terms of like the longevity of film? I mean, in terms of the, f- the film industry, I feel like, I mean, their reasoning behind it. And I know like everyone talks about Fuji being terrible about, about getting rid of film and, things they've done in the past, but the reasoning behind it is that they can't get a certain thing to make the film. So it's not like they're, I mean, it's not like they're completely giving up on like film in general. And I, I personally feel like it's going to come back. Like they're going to figure out a way to how to make it, whether it's just like a different emulsion or whatever. But, um, in the long term, I don't, I mean, film, I've only been in it like a couple years now, almost two years, I guess. And it's just getting stronger and stronger. So I, I don't see it like declining that much over the next couple of years, at least. So it's like, if they want to come back in 2023 or whatever, like, I feel like that would be the best case scenario for them. And like, everyone just has like all these things to say about what these companies have done in the past. And I don't really think that uh, matters anymore because that's the past. Like you can't bring it back and it's, like Kodachrome's gone. Like all these films are gone. They're never coming back. So you just need to focus on the future. And I mean, it's never been as strong as, as it's been now from what I've seen. And it might've been like stronger in the past when film was the only thing around, but I feel like it's just going to get better and better from here on out, especially with people like Willem Verbeek on YouTube and all these big names and people pushing film and just the process of film. I think it's got a pretty good outlook. I mean, something that does stand out to me, and this might be entirely geographical, um, it, we tend to find out things that are going on in America and we tend to get them a few years later. For some reason, it almost feels like we're in some kind of detached moon that is devoid of, of you know, qu- quick connection to what's going on in the United States. But something that does stand out to me is that there has been this huge resurgence with film. There has been this huge popularization of film, not just from within the photography community, but Outside of it, you know, there's the celebrity culture with the contacts. I think it's the T2 or the T3. Film presets, film borders, all of this kind of nonsense. Every filter that's on Instagram now is based around film, essentially. Mm -hmm. It just feels to me like it's not being capitalized on by companies. Like there's not a lot of commercialization in capitalizing on the popularity of film from within film. So it feels like 
you know, seeing our film stock go away is almost moving backwards from what we would expect because mm-hmm. people are buying more film. Kodak had to had to make certain steps to be able to increase their production to keep up with demand and so on. Ilford seems to be doing pretty well. I, I just I'm not really sure why there's not as much capitalization on on that resurgence. Yeah, I think it might like I feel like it's such it does feel like it's big and it's coming back and uh, all these things, but I still feel like it's such a small niche in the community. Like when you pick people to follow on Instagram, you're picking people based on your interests. And if you're interested in film, you're going to see more film photographers, but I just feel like it's only big because the people that are in it, that's all they really see. And I feel like for every one film photographer, there's probably a thousand digital photographers out there. So I can understand why it's not getting, um, as much, uh, exposure, but, um, well, you'd think a business would look at that situation. Like you said, say it's a thousand to one and they would say, well, there's, there's a thousand people potentially that we could tap into. You know, like I've, I've made the comparison in the past that people seem to think that film is comparable to digital photography in the same way that like a VHS was to, to like online streaming. But it's, to me, it's mm-hmm. not. It's actually more of an acoustic guitar to electric guitar situation. They're both completely mm-hmm. viable mediums and both have extensive qualities and, and drawbacks that either make them perfectly suited for or eliminate them from certain situations. And that seems to be the issue. I understand marketing on the basis of nostalgia, but nostalgia is short-lived. And if you make something present, it's no longer nostalgic. That's why it's mm-hmm. always changing. You know, now, now in England, we're seeing nostalgia for the 90s, which I cannot get my head around because the 90s were vile. But <laughs> we're seeing this nostalgia for the 90s. But you know, when that becomes too common, then we'll find nostalgia for the 60s or nostalgia for the 80s or the 40s or whatever. There'll always be this cycle to keep it nostalgic. And it doesn't feel like it's a particularly solid ground to build on. It would be much better to look at those thousand digital photographers and say, have, you know, I, I personally really feel like Canon could do with, with releasing something like the EOS 3 again, like an updated mm-hmm. version of the EOS 3, where it's basically like, hey, you've got a bunch of lenses that will work on this camera. This shoots film. It's stuff you can do at home. It's stuff that's like really fun and tangible and it goes in the bag with your digital stuff. So you've got the right camera for all different types of situations as opposed to like the marketing now. I mean, digital marketing has gotten so turgid because it was like megapixels, megapixels, megapixels. And then when, when no one gave a shit anymore about megapixels, then it was like, oh, but this can go to ISO 51 million and, and no one cares mm-hmm. about that anymore. I just feel, I really do feel like there's a potential for a huge marketing thing here. And it's just... Seeing those thousand digital photographers shouldn't scare the film side of things. It should encourage them that there's all these people that have an interest that is so close to what it is that you're selling that you could you could reach some of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I feel like we're moving in that direction because there are a lot. I feel like so many more people are getting interested in film that I just because like when I first got into film, I, I was all digital. I was into that. Like I had like the new Sony AS7 II and it went up to 400,000 ISO and it could see in the dark and all this stuff. But I had absolutely no idea about anything film related. And I feel like there's just so many digital photographers that are like that. Like they don't know this whole entire culture of like Pentax 6.7s and RZ 6.7s and large format. And I think uh, the more that we introduce people and the more like popular YouTubers and Instagram and people shooting like larger formats and uh, just people getting into like eight by 10, which I mean, back in the day, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone that knew what an eight by 10 camera was. But I feel like if you ask some photographers out there, they're going to be more informed on these weirder, like larger formats and medium format and 35 millimeters. So I feel like we're leaning in that direction. And I, and I agree, like, I don't think the companies are capitalizing on it right now. And I feel like they could do a lot better job by um, giving those people that are creating content for film, like YouTubers and people on Instagram. And I know like Kodak does an amazing job with their Instagram 
And like they sent me some free chemicals to mess around with. And like I post that on my story. And then like I feel like they're doing an okay job, but they could definitely be doing better in that regard. And I feel like companies like Intrepid and Negative Supply are doing a really good job, like making the tools um, to make it easier to do things like scan and shoot larger formats. And I think even a couple of years from now, like one, two, three, it's just going to get better. Hopefully that's my idea personally, but uh, uh, I hope it doesn't start to decline anytime soon because I'm liking where it's going so far. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think it's only going to go, go on from here and, and continue to progress. I, I just maybe feel like it's now's a good time to build on, on the success and, and, you know, then you're in a better position in two years time to actually pick up some new photographers that are like, I want to get into photography and I'm going to get into digital in the same way that I remember, you know, being 13 years old and begging my parents for a guitar and it was, do you want an acoustic or an electric? I feel like, you know, there are people that will say that they want to have a film camera because they like, you know, this person's work or they saw this or they like, you know, there's, there's lots of different reasons. I think, you know, you look at the stuff that people do that they'll spend extra time, extra effort and extra money on just to have that process. There's, there's examples of it in music, in, in cooking, in sort of craft stuff, in decorating, in everything that people do. There are people that choose to sometimes go what would be seen from the outside as the harder route for it to be more fulfilling. And I just think there is a, there is a hidden trick here that, that companies could kind of unlock. I mean, I look at the, the number of companies that are producing film and it's always a shock to me when I sort of hear of another company that I'd never previously heard of. And there seems to be companies kind of coming forwards for the first time and, and bringing stuff out. You mentioned Lomography, which seems to in the last two years have really kind of wedged itself in with um, a couple of the bigger companies. Do, mm-hmm. do you feel like having lots and lots of little brands, and I don't mean to diminish you know, Lomography, but in comparison to Kodak, it's a much smaller brand. Do you think having lots and lots of these little brands is a, is a good thing? Or would you rather see just two or three really, really strong brands fight it out? No, I, uh, like Lomography, they're doing, I failed to mention that they're doing like a w- wonderful job, like, cause they just came out or they're coming out with the, the instant back with the Instax wide film. And they've reached out to so many people and they've like accepted so many uh, inquiries on using that and getting it out there so people can see what it's like. And that's a widely available film and they're making a back for a large format camera for it. So I think that's great. And yeah, Lomography, I don't personally shoot their film. Well, I don't anymore now since, uh, they don't make large format film, but, uh, I think that is really good because it will kind of get like a fire under Kodak and Ilford's ass to be a little bit better about, uh, just getting the exposure out there for people that don't shoot film and the smaller sample of people that shoot just a little bit of film to try to get them more involved and more interested in everything. And, um, yeah, I mean, that kind of relates to just like smaller smaller YouTubers, smaller Instagram, like it's all better for the community when smaller people get exposure, because that's going to make the people that are already bigger, hopefully work harder and be a little bit better about, uh, making community and just trying to push the whole idea of film and photography upwards instead of trying to bring it down. I mean, you mentioned Ilford there and before I go into what I'm going to say, I will say that I pretty much primarily only use Ilford Film uh, for the stuff mm-hmm. that I do. I'm a big fan um, specifically of HP5, of FP4, and um, I'm very excited this week to try out some Pana for the first time on the recommendation of about five different people on the podcast previously. So I, I'm, I'm a big fan of their products, but what I will say is in the middle of the pandemic over here, in the middle of the lockdowns, you know, uh, their factory shut down completely. And um, obviously it's in England and I contacted them and said, I run a podcast, you know, it's, uh, I'd like to have, have you guys come on, talk about, you know, the history of, of Ilford and, and, and whatever, you know, talk about the future and how the process is working, how you're going to be affected by the pandemic, how people can help a company like you, blah, blah, blah. And they just, they literally replied with, we're not doing podcasts right now. And it's, it's, I'm not saying my one was particularly the one, cause I, d- I definitely don't think I'm, uh, you know, anything of anything, but 
it's very bizarre to me that with a bunch of staff members that are at home and a factory that's not in use and a bunch of workers that really can't do anything other than twiddle their thumbs and watch the news and get depressed, they didn't think it would be a good idea to just put out some form of, uh, you know, to, to give me like, you know, the, the vice assistant, 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 assistant guy to come in and mm-hmm. talk about something. It feels like there's a little bit of complacency there from, from a brand like that when really, like I say, this is a really good time to, to kind of get in people's faces and, and, and show what you're made of. Yeah. That's surprising to hear because I, like, I know Ilford, like they're still coming out with like new, like photo paper and they're, they make YouTube videos like all the time about darkroom printing. And, uh, like if you said moment did that to you, I would definitely expect a company like moment to do that because oh, they're, they're just complete they're, moment are too busy hiking prices on photographers and pretending that they're their friend. Right. But a company like, I don't know, it's just weird when, because uh, like I've reached out to people and companies like that and I don't know what it like I would just never personally just I, I don't know like that's their thing and they're just like a film company and I feel like uh with what they do previously like I know they do like um behind the scenes on certain photographers and um yeah just like the stuff that I mentioned with their YouTube channel I'm surprised that they did that but uh yeah, I'm a huge fan of Ilford and their film. Like I, the, the one film that I'm shooting for, uh, eight by 10 is FP four. So, uh, and I definitely recommend pan F as well. It's very high contrast, but <laughs> everybody recommends it. I need to get on the train. Yeah. I, the first, uh, one of the first films I shot was pan F because, uh, I wanted to shoot wide open, obviously with my, uh, Mamiya camera. So I got some pan up since it's a, a 50 speed film, but it, it was a really nice film. So obviously you've mentioned about, you know, companies reaching out to uh, people that are on Instagram or have YouTube channels and how that can spread the word and so on. Um, in terms of those people, the sort of more significant figures in, in the film community in general, the ones that more people are going to have access to because they have a big following on YouTube or a big following on Instagram, what should or shouldn't they be doing to help you know, prolong and grow what film photography is. I mean, with like what Kodak does, like they always like on their Instagram specifically, they're, they're always posting photos from, it can be a a big person, a big photographer on Instagram, or it can be a small photographer. And I think that's really great with what they're doing because they don't know, like, I don't think they really realize how cool that is to be like featured on their page. And I feel like that just gives younger photographers, something to work towards, I guess. Um, and like making a photo that might get featured on Kodak's page, but I mean, they could always be better about, um, just doing other things. Like, I feel like they should definitely have, I know they have a YouTube channel and they post like some of their film, um, people that shoot on their, their motion picture film, but I feel like they could do a better job about just talking about some of the figures in their company and like the behind the scenes um, of how the whole film process works, because that's what people are interested in when they watch like my channel or a Willem Verbeek's channel or someone like that. They're interested in the process and they're interested in the photos. And I feel like they could do a better job in that regard. I feel like they could take a, uh, um, take a page from Ilford's, um, the way that they do it with their behind the scenes and things like that. But um, I think that they might've been a little caught off guard with this whole resurgence and everything. And they might be trying to put everything together right now and just see what the best um, thing to do is at the moment. But um, especially with the pandemic happening and that probably just screwed everything up and everything that they're doing. And I mean, everything just comes down to money. And like my, my dad would always say that he's like, it's, it's the almighty dollar. And yeah. it's just, everything comes down to profit margins and income and revenue. And I don't blame them for like halting production on something that they're going to lose a ton of money on. Like, right. It's just, I mean, it is what it is, but I feel like we're on an upward trend. And after this whole pandemic uh, slows down a little bit, I think things are going to get even better with um, maybe some prices and things like that. And not as many, things limiting the the whole process of film. 
Well, we have an expression here, which is once bitten, twice shy. And I think once you've had a huge collapse in the market, like what film had, you're not going to you know, go completely balls to the wall on it now with a view to a potential another collapse that could cause you a lot. So I do understand the, the sort of cautious nature. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just in, in my incredibly poor opinion, it's just slightly overcautious. The YouTubers themselves, the, the, the bigger names in YouTube, one thing that, that has started sort of, well, one thing that stood out to me for sure is I had a conversation with Bray Hunziker a while back and we had a conversation about whether or not cameras being um, harder to get hold of will actually be more, more of the death of film than the films going out of stock or going out of production because there are a limited number of cameras. They're not a, they're not a tremendous amount being made right now. Probably was surprised some people to, to know that there are even film cameras being made at the moment, but there's not a tremendous amount. And the ones that are around, there's not a tremendous amount of people that are knowledgeable in how to repair them, um, especially mm-hmm. away from somewhere like California or away from New York or away from London. Do you think that there's a potential that YouTubers that post um, sort of like monthly or weekly um, I just bought this camera and then everyone goes on eBay, searches that camera and buys up what's left of it and the price goes through the roof. Do you think that that's something that could be quite toxic in the end for for keeping film going? Yeah, I, I think a lot of that is uh, fair. just the, the, the idea of watching a video and then like going on eBay and buying it, it's very short-sighted. But that I feel like there's pros and cons to that because obviously like people getting more interested in film in the, in the cameras is better, but um, buying up all the cameras and not having any left is a huge con obviously. And it just might be like, I'm not very optimistic in regards of just life in general. And that's just my, uh, (laughs) my personal, just how I feel about things, but I am pretty optimistic. Like my thinking is if, all the film cameras are being bought up and say a Pentax six, seven is up to two, three, $4,000. I feel like companies and CEOs are going to realize that and say, Hey, there's people paying $2,000 for a Pentax six, seven. So maybe we need to make a newer model that people can afford so they can shoot their film. So I'm hoping that if it ever gets to the case where there's, no Pentax 6.7s or RZ 6.7s to go around that um, those rich CEOs sitting in their office will realize that and start to make something that's a little more affordable. And then all the used gear will go down in price and everyone will be happy. But I don't have to worry about that because I shoot large format and all it is is a piece of wood and bellows. So (laughs) All those CEOs you're talking about as well, they're all shooting Leicas. Because uh, <laughs> yeah, that's how it works, right? Um, exactly. people, people that play golf and shoot likers are all CEOs. Mm-hmm. In terms of the something you brought up, sort of right at the beginning of this, and I, I'd never really thought about it until you you said it. And having watched a couple of your videos shooting with large format, especially shooting people, you said about sort of you have to focus more on your subject interaction and 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 how that works. How hard is it to explain the process of large format photography to someone that's only ever been photographed with like an iPhone or a digital camera? The majority of people that I interact with are just very uh, intrigued by it. And I always make sure to tell them when I, if I knock on someone's door and they agree to a portrait, I always tell them like I use a bigger film camera. It takes a while to set up. So I always tell them to like go in and just go on about your day and then I'll get set up and then I'll like knock on the door and uh, you can come out here. But most of the time they just stick around and uh, just watch me set up and they're always asking questions and asking about how big the negative is. And if I develop at home, if I have a dark room at home, because most of the people that I do photograph for this project are going to be like 50, like 40, 50, 60 years old. So they were in that time when film was like the only thing that's around. So they know all about negatives and they know about dark rooms and things like that. So um, they're very interested in it. And I feel like that just helps the overall interaction because it just loosens them up a little bit and it just helps them relax and I can get like the best uh, representation of them. Whereas if I had a digital camera, I would go up and be like, Hey, can I take a picture of you? And then I just whip out my camera and take a picture and they just might, it's, it might not be the best representation of them. 
But in regards to like other types of photography, they're like, I'm not going to go out on the streets in New York and have a large format camera. Like obviously <laughs> I, I would have like a, a 35 millimeter to take around or just a digital camera to snap things as I go. Like there's a, I don't knock any type of format or any camera because there's always a use for everything that's out there. And with your, with your style on, on the large format, it's probably a hard question to ask someone to evaluate about themselves, but do you see links between the way that you photograph on digital compared to 35 mil compared to medium format and now on large format? Do you actually see your style still showing through? Because I feel like the camera and, and the, the format takes on a lot of the, the style that you're shooting. Do you still see like your images from the, the digital stuff having the similar sort of look in terms of what you want to show when you go to large format? Yeah, I feel like when I went from digital to to film in large format, that definitely didn't translate because the the images that I took with digital were like more spontaneous and things that would just happen out of the blue. Like obviously I shoot weddings, so it'd be like um just random moments throughout the day. But when you shoot large format, obviously it's a much slower and it's more staged and things like that. So I felt like my uh my, my thinking with large format went back to my digital after I started using large format for a while. So, um, the couple of times that I shot a wedding last year, I feel like my large format process was going more towards that. And I was shooting just a lot less photos and I was, uh, staging more photos and just shooting how I shoot with large format. I would be shooting with digital. And I feel like that's, a good thing because, um, I mean, I, f- I feel like it's good to have a certain, uh, distinct style over every format. And I mean, you can shoot 35 millimeter, however you want, and you can shoot large format, however you want, but, um, being consistent with each one is going to make, just make you better in the, in the long run. And that's why I tell people to, to stick to like, pick a camera that you like and stick to it for a long time. And that's when you're going to make the best photos and stick to a film. And because in the beginning, I was trying every different camera, every different film stock. But in the end, I like a large format camera and I like a normal 150 millimeter lens. And I like um, Portrait 160 or like a T-Max 100, like low speed, um, low grain. And I always tell people that like, find something that you like and stick with that. And that's when you're going to make the best uh, images you can make. Well, I had a message this week from someone that had just found the podcast and they'd found it through a photographer and they were, you know, they, they wanted to get in touch and just sort of let me know what, what they think of it. And it's always nice to have things like that. Um, but one of the things that actually brought up, which I thought was a really uh, an eye-opening thing for me was that because I know the work of everybody that I interview, because that's the reason that I'm getting in touch with them sometimes, and this isn't what he said, but this is kind of the gist of what I got from it. I can perhaps overlook that other people might not know about certain things that they're talking about. And I actually need to double back because it's just dawned on me that you said about knocking on people's doors and asking to take pictures of them. So for people Mm -hmm. that don't know how you do that or why you do that or how you make that selection, you know, what that, that whole process is like. So how do you go about figuring out what doors to knock on and, and what's your approach with those people? Well, so the, the whole idea behind the project started because obviously I shoot film. So obviously I shoot photos of cars and taillights and stuff. So I took is I took photos like that and it led to like a really good exposure and I got a lot, a lot of people looking at my work, but for me, that just gets really tiresome and boring to take photos of the same thing. But I was still attracted to cars and I still liked the idea behind shooting cars. But um, around March or April of last year, I was photographing a car and this guy came up to me and started asking questions because they were his cars. And um, I just started talking to him and he started talking about the history behind everything. And he took me into his backyard and he had like 10 other vehicles back there and he had names for each one, like one, one was named like Sherry and like Carla. And it was kind of weird, but it was endearing (laughs) too. It was endearing too, at the same time, because 
uh, it's just like this guy who has classic cars and he names them. And I ended up taking his portrait at the end because he was uh, dressed very strangely. He just got back from work and he was in the center of these three different vans that he named. And it was just like a really good story. So I wanted to take his portrait and then tell people about the interaction that I had. And then after that, people uh, embraced that really well and they just liked the story behind it. So I figured it'd be a good idea to take portraits of the people at the cars I would come across. And obviously not everyone's going to be outside when you're taking a picture of their car. So the next step is going to knock on people's doors so I could see if they're home so I could get their portrait. And I know a lot of different people, depending on where you are in the world, um, it might be a good idea or it might be a really bad idea to do, <laughs> to do that. But in, in my part of the country in the Midwest, it's not that bad when you go and knock on someone's door from the experiences that I've had at least. So, I mean, I just go up and knock on their door. I don't have my camera out or anything. And I just tell them the idea about the project and they either say yes or they say no. And most of the time they say yes. And then I just set up my camera and then uh, try to get them in an interesting uh, composition. But sometimes lately I've been coming across a lot of people that it's like, obviously I want to have interesting people for the project to make interesting photos. And some people, they open up the door and they're not very interesting. They're just a normal guy, but I still take their photo and I still listen to the, the history behind everything because, um, they could tell you something that makes that photo even better after the fact. So mm -hmm. you always gotta, you always gotta listen to people and, uh, hear the background on the thing that you're taking a photo of. And again, it goes back to having, uh, the large format camera that helps even more because you have so much time to set everything up. It's like you have to fill the silence with something unless you're a masochist and enjoy uh, <laughs> silence. But uh, yeah, they always tell the history of the car and then I always get their name and number and uh, give them a print afterwards. I haven't given many prints out, but I'm looking to print uh, in the dark room and then give them like handmade prints and things like that to uh, show an appreciation for their time. You know, the fact that you shoot weddings and then like you just said there, like looking into the stories. And actually one thing you did say was that the stories make the images better. Can you elaborate on that? Because as a wedding photographer, like one of my favorite parts about the job is the fact that there's context to what you're doing. So you are trying to make lots and lots of aesthetically pleasing images, but there's a reason for it. There's a purpose. And, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like a lot of people that work in in portraits don't realize that there's sometimes it's a good idea to have some kind of narrative purpose to what you're doing. Sometimes it's just pretty people standing in pretty places with pretty light. And it's, you know, it's, it's not exactly the most dense and thick subject ever. It's just kind of very paper and, and surface value. Right. Is, is that story side of it the, the really the most important thing to you? It's hard to say because I've, I've read photo books with just portraits and just like a name or like no text at all. And I feel like I like that a lot because you can kind of come up with your own interpretation, but I've also read and looked at photo books that have portraits and things with a, an entire backstory on it. And I like that as well. So I'm kind of wrestling with that whole idea myself when I go to like put this out and uh, put it into book form. If I want to include these stories because I feel like a lot of people uh, like that when, when I post on Instagram and I post like the whole backstory, like people get a little something more out of just the photo and it makes them stay a little bit longer. So I'm kind of in between on that. But uh, for myself, I love like talking to the people and hearing the backstory on everything. And I think that's just because I'm not I I've always been a really shy person. So I think this whole idea behind this, this project is just me wanting to get out and, uh, be a little more brave in my interactions with people and just be able to, to talk to people, um, a little more freely. And that might too also relate to just starting a YouTube channel and being a little more confident with like talking to a camera 
and just talking to people I don't know. But uh, I feel like I hope I'll figure that out. What I want to do with uh, with with the book, but I'm leaning towards putting a little bit of a backstory with everything, just because I I feel like that's what I'm I'm leaning towards, and that's what I'm drawn to. So I feel like I'm I'm just gonna have to do that. I mean, you mentioned your YouTube channel there, and something that I'm seeing more and more and more, and I think it's been exacerbated by the amount of time people have had on their hands. They've not been able to work, or they've been stuck at home, or they've been working from home, and probably going a bit stir crazy. But I'm seeing lots of people kind of, they're usually the people that refer to themselves as content creators, which is a phrase that I can say without any doubt, it irritates my wife beyond belief. And it's not something that I'm (laughs) the biggest fan of because it makes you sound almost like you are religious in yourself. Yeah. But uh, people that sort of, they give themselves like a weekly deadline. So like every Tuesday night, they're going to bring out a video at eight o'clock and you start to see the strain. You start to see how it's like a video for video's sake and YouTube's no longer doing anything for them other than getting past the monetization line. For you with YouTube, what's it doing for you at this point? I feel like that has changed uh, dramatically the past couple months because like in the beginning, I was just, I mean, I, I don't look back on my old videos and cringe, but I do look back and, <laughs> and just think to myself like, oh, you're a fucking idiot. Like you're saying things that are just not true. But for me right now, it's just, it's a platform to kind of like, cause I am in no way like the voice of a, like the smaller people or the people that don't get exposure or anything like that. But I want to be a voice for people that they can go to, to get just on honest and authentic thoughts, because I feel like that's lacking in the YouTube world because a lot of people just go on there and show their best shit all the time. And it gets really nauseating and annoying to see that over and over. So I just want to be on there and show authentic things. And I also want to give exposure to people that, um, wouldn't get it elsewhere. Like the last video I just made with, uh, my favorite portrait photographers at the moment, I want to showcase females. I want to showcase black people. I want to showcase brown, orange, blue people, like everyone. And I don't want it to just be my buddies or my, my best pals who are on my subscription feed. Um, I want it to be the best and I just want people to be able to come to my channel and, and see that I'm doing my part. And if I have to say the honest things about people who aren't doing their part, then I'll definitely do that. And, uh, if people get a little butthurt about that, I don't really care anymore. I used to care, but, um, ever since the whole moment debacle, like I'm just going to say how I feel because (laughs) When I do say how I feel, there's hundreds of people in my DMs saying that's exactly how they feel. And I just... Well, that's part and parcel of what's going on at the moment in general, is that people have a very hard line stance on something. So it could be a huge issue. It could be a tiny issue, but it feels like social media has cornered people into having a really concrete, it's, you know, there's no shades of gray. This is the opinion that's right. And anyone that disagrees with it is a bad person, blah, 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 blah. And then what <clears> happens is you have one person say, well, hang on, no, I prefer this shade of gray. And then all of a sudden they'll just be inundated with people saying, yeah, no, I agree with you, but I just can't say it publicly. I can't, I can't, you know, like you don't want to speak out against the, the wrong YouTuber and upset the wrong large following because then that could be an issue. You don't want to speak out against like, you know, I, when I, when I had a, a, a pop-up moment over there, price hiking, I had people that were saying to me, like, you should be careful because they have a big following. And it's like, okay, but that's not, I mean, that's one of my most, there's two tropes with YouTube actually that really get to me. One is the idea that the number of followers someone has is somehow indicative of the accuracy of their information, which when you have photographers Mm -hmm. like Frono's photo, we all know that that's not true. The guy's got a huge following. And I think my dog has forgotten more than he knows about photography. (laughs) Yeah. And then on the other side of it, there's this like, well, how good someone's production value is, is indicative of like how, how much icing there is, is indicative of how good the cake tastes. And it's like, no, 
that guy's got lots of flash and lots of like, you know, you know, jingling keys and that to distract people. There's lots of bright mm-hmm. lights and movement to keep the kids entertained. But at the end of the day, there's really not a lot of, of substance with all of that style. Those are the two mm-hmm. tropes of YouTube that really bug me is this idea that A, a following makes you somehow a, a better or more reliable person. Or that as long as you have like 16 different types of neon lights in your bedroom with 28 monitors rolling, you must know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And like I had that same thinking when I first started because like I just said, I look back on my old videos and I think that I'm an idiot, but um, I had that same thinking going in when I first started my channel, like what am I going to say or what am I like? I'm just... I'm starting out. I don't know that much, but that's exactly what I said when I started out. I'm like, I'm just going to showcase my whole experience and you're going to come along with the the fails and the highs and the lows and everything. So it's like when I made the large format video and I fucked up the dark slide like 15 times and cost myself $70 in ectochrome. It's like, it's like, I'm going to show that and that's going to help someone in in the long run to not make the same mistake. And like, I'm still showing my mistakes. Like I'm, I'm talking about how I go out and drive around and I get anxious about uh, knocking on doors or I get anxious about setting up my camera. Like, I think that resonates with far more people than just going around and shooting pictures of uh, like shrub bushes and saying that's fire with the sunset in the background. <laughs> so, and that's not a knock on anyone. Like, that's just not what I'm, I'm going to do personally. but. Well, I, I, do you know what? To take issue with something really small and petty, and and obviously there's a huge cultural divide between me and you. You're American. I'm foreign. Because if you're not in America, you must be foreign. That's a tendency with a you're, lot of movies and stuff. Yeah. Fire, as a as a an adjective, that's fire. That you know, as a compliment. So this came from people would post the emoji for fire to say that something was hot. Right. And that's morphed into people just literally describing the emoji. And I cannot tell you, and I know this is like the smallest problem. We've got a pandemic, we've got all kinds of stuff going on, but this might be the one thing that drives me the most insane is the, the, the use of the word fire for when something's good. I, I can't tell you how much it gets to me. I've never personally said that out loud. And I know we're thinking of the same person that said it in that one video. <laughs> and I, I I don't know if he's joking in the video or not. I don't know if he's like being serious. Like, it's just, I don't know. Like I, I get upset about the, those types of things too, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the, the whole shebang is about fire. See, the thing is, is that people will interpret what I'm saying here as like, oh, that's the biggest issue that he's got going on. No, not at all. Not even close to the biggest issue that's going on in anyone's life. But what I will tell you is if you are explaining something that is of the utmost importance that could literally save my life or save my wife's life or save my little dog's life or anything like that, and it's like something I have to pay such close attention to, but you say that's fire in the middle of that. I'm going to disregard all information that comes after that. And, and I'll just take my risks. Like I'll, I'll just, whatever happens, happens at that point, because that's how much I despise the use of that word um, in that sense. Right. I, I think you despise it just as much as I despise the actual fire, just the fire emoji on Instagram comments or YouTube comments. So we, now we have to see if we can find a level ground here. How do you feel about the people that unironically use the word dope? I mean, I've said dope before and I, I say it a lot in text, but I don't say it a lot out loud. But uh, have you ever heard it said by an English person? No, I haven't. It's, it's bad. It's really, really <laughs> bad. It's like when an English person says awesome because of the way we pronounce it, it just loses. Because when, an, especially a Californian, but when an American pronounces the word awesome, it sounds like they're really excited about the thing that they're describing. When an English person says, that's awesome, it sounds like they're being sarcastic. Yeah, it does. Right? If I, if, I, if I said to you in person, like you show me a print and I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. You'd be like, well, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. All right. We, we probably need to move off of the petty stuff and I need to give you your evening or your afternoon back because we've been recording for quite a while. Let, let's round up here then. Are we going to see a lot of eight by 10 videos coming up? What's the plan with YouTube? Um, so I have 
yeah, if I get the eight bytes, well, it's supposed to rain for a, a long time, but uh, I do, I do have a couple people lined up for analog artisans. Um, I think next Tuesday I'm doing a video on this guy that renovated a old cathedral church and turned it into a skate park. So I'm excited about that and telling his story. And then um, I have a, a tin type photographer. She's a, a photographer in St. Louis that I'm excited to uh, do an episode on. I was supposed to do her whole thing about a month ago, but she had some troubles with her tin type process. So looking forward to doing that. And then I have some other analog artisans. I'm really excited about... Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Brian Scootmont. He's a portrait photographer who shoots four by five, but um, I reached out to him and then he agreed to do an analog artisans episode, which he's my favorite photographer of all time. So I'm extremely excited slash really nervous to potentially take his photo. And I'm hoping that I don't mess up anything, but um, he's going to be in the Midwest sometime in the spring to shoot for a project. So I'm hoping to meet up with him, but um, yeah, YouTube's going to be a lot of eight by 10, um, a lot of large formats, a lot of darkroom stuff, like learning that whole process. Cause I'm definitely still learning in that, but it's definitely going to be geared towards, um, just analog artisans and large format and getting more exposure for voices that are unheard in the world of photography and film. I mean, it sounds fire. I'm not going to lie. It sounds, sounds awesome. Yeah. It's, it's going to be dope. <laughs> um, one person I would love to see on your analog artisans, and I don't want to go like thrusting someone upon you here, but I'd love to see you talk with Eli Warren. So I'm expecting any day now to receive uh, his, his newest book and, and one of his older books. And he has these wonderful projects that are really sort of finite and they work in their own very small, uh, how do I describe it? They work within their own sort of small remit. There's, it's not like a big, broad social thing, although you can interpret it that way. He does these very small series and I've got two of his books coming. He's someone who I think that I'd be really fascinated to see a conversation between the two of you. Yeah, I I actually I follow him and uh, I started following him because he shoots. I think he shoots four by five. Yep, he I'm does. pretty sure he does. Yeah. So, well, where is he based out of? I think he's North Carolina. I mean, I, I've traveled pretty far for less important things, so uh, I would <laughs> I would not I would not be against going to North Carolina. But well, I mean, if I can be a person that helps aggregate that, then because I'll get something out of it that I want to watch, I'll selfishly do that and help you guys <laughs> out. But yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to all of those. I mean, anytime that you're you're talking to someone that's done something as bizarre as renovate a cathedral into a skate park or <laughs> or does four by five or tin type anything like that, I'm always on board to listen to. Um, it's it's a it's a fantastic. Um, it's also wonderful to see someone illuminating other people's work and kind of and showing off what other people get up to and other people's stories as opposed to just trying to find different ways to repackage what it is that they do. And that, that's been, that's probably been my favorite part of it. It's just, it, it introduces you to so many new people. We need to tell people where they can go to find all of this. So uh, the YouTube, the Instagram and so on, please just plug away. Yeah. So Instagram is just Brian Burks, um, B-R-Y-A-N-B-I-R-K-S. And then YouTube's the exact same uh, websites, brianburks.com. But, uh, yeah, YouTube is where I post. I'm going to post a lot of the stuff that I don't post on Instagram or I, I look at Instagram as like a kind of like a portfolio, but, um, YouTube's going to be like where all my mistakes go and all my problems <laughs> that I'm facing. And, and it's basically like my therapy zone. So uh, check that out if you're into uh, people making mistakes and growing and learning and hearing about cool photographers. Well, there's, there's this thing that's it's definitely an American thing where um, I see it on Instagram a lot on like meme pages or, or whatever. And it'll be like, can we normalize wearing baggy jeans? Can we normalize, you know, getting the bus? Can we normalize going to drive it? Like all of this nostalgic stuff that you did as a kid or you, you used to wear or whatever, can we normalize it? And I don't really understand mm -hmm. why anyone needs societal permission to wear a different kind of jean or to go to a movie or whatever, but that seems to be the nature of people these days. They're very reliant on, on everyone else. And <laughs> let, let's, let's do one that actually is worthwhile. I, with what people get from watching your channel, and you've mentioned a couple of times about showing the downs as well as the ups, how about we normalize people embracing 
not being perfect at everything and not trying to showcase themselves as perfect at everything because that's the biggest problem with social media is everyone's always trying to show themselves off to be this like omnipotent, constantly succeeding, every day is a bright, wonderful day, everyone's always smiling kind of place. And it would just be nice to see a bit more humanity and a little bit more honesty with it. So let's normalize that. Exactly. Like I, yeah, I get so many comments on that. Like people's just saying, I'm so glad you, you showed you, your, your failings and everything like, like I would love if the bigger YouTubers out there and the bigger Instagram photographers or just photographers in general, if they showed them making mistakes, like that would just breathe like new life into the, the world of community because people would understand that they're not perfect and they're not out getting the perfect photo every single day. And it would just make everyone's life a lot better, I feel like. Uh, one thing that will happen though is when when they do inevitably start doing that, I'll just say that they're copying you. Hey, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. It's so good to talk to you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.